you'll turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, you can open up uh, your app, Grace uh, 417, Grace Church, Grace 417. Uh, we have the notes on there as well. And this morning, I have to warn you, my uh, sermon's rated R. So it just is, but it's rated R for redemption. And that's what we're focusing on this morning. And it's actually, um, it's actually one of those stories in the Bible that as a, as a pastor, as a, as a teacher, that you come to and you just hope that you can do it justice. Like you just hope and you pray and you ask for God to make his word to come alive for the Holy Spirit to translate and to take the words that I'm saying and to, and to allow them to, to, to land and to bear fruit and to do what he uh, wants them to do because this is, in my opinion, is one of the most amazing stories in the entire Bible. It's one of those for theologians that's a hiccup. Like, People just don't know what to do uh, with this story and what happens here. And, and I just love it because it's just one of the great, great stories of the grace and of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as you come to, if, in a little bit, we're going to go to Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11, um, for, for decades, maybe even centuries, uh, it's been called the Hall of Faith. You've heard, you've heard of the Hall of Fame. This is the Hall of Faith. And there's a list of the people of great faith uh, that, that were in the Old Testament. And they're just listed. I mean, the people of faith like, like Moses, like, like Noah, like Joshua, uh, just the great prophets. And, and it's this hall of just declaring that these are the great men and women of God, Deborah, the incredible ones. And in this story, in this list is Rahab. And who we're going to talk about today, Rahab the prostitute. And she's included in this list because God wrote her story in such a way that it's carried on for millennia of the greatness and of the goodness of the God that we serve. And so as we come to this passage this morning, uh, as we look at that, we're, we're going to see this. And we're going to see how uh, in, in, in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord told Joshua, Moses has just died. They're at the edge of the promised land that God has promised them. They were denied at once because of their lack of belief. They're right up to the same place again. And, and the Lord says to, Mo, to Joshua, Joshua, be strong and be courageous. If you follow my word, I'm going to be with you everywhere that you go, and it is all yours. All you have to do is to believe and to obey and go for it, and I've already made the way for you. And so this is the very first step um, of that journey of possessing the promised land that God has for them. Psalm 139.16 says, David says, You saw me, Lord, before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book before one of them came to be. Isn't that fascinating? That every one of our days were pre-written before we ever lived them. And that he's ordained that for us. Now, if you're like me, there's some pages and maybe some chapters that are in my book that the Lord didn't write. You know, you know what I'm saying? They're kind of extra appendixes, if you will, of, uh, of extra but what I want to talk about this morning is letting the Lord write our story. Letting the Lord write your story. Oh, and, and I want to ask you, would you really consider let that? Because he is searching for you to be in his story. Because that's what history is. History is his story. And he's searching for you to be in his story. That's what he did in, in Joshua chapter 2 with Rahab. He was searching for those that could be in his story. Let's look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, because he had no parents, 
secretly, I thought that would be funnier than it was. Uh, Joshua, the son of Nun. Why, why Rahab? Why, why would they stay there? Now, I know some scholars, some theologians said that she may have uh, been running or owned like an, an inn or a tavern, a place, you know, a motel where, where, where people would have stayed, maybe. The Bible doesn't tell us that, although culturally that could have uh, very well been, been, been possible. I think it's because the Lord was searching her out. The Lord knew her heart. They were drawn there. If you look at, let's look at it for a moment in a map of Jericho. This is, this is pretty, pretty fascinating. I hope you can see it okay. Yeah, it's, it's not too bad. So over here on the right is the town where they were coming from. Uh, and they're cro- they, they, they sneak over the, the Jordan right there. And they come to this, this city right here called Jericho. It's the first city they come to. Uh, they're sent to spy out the land and to go look at Jericho. And, and so they do this. And it's a part of the West Bank. And you'll, you'll hear... You hear in the news a lot about the West Bank, don't you? And, and maybe if you're not sure why it's called the West Bank, the reason it's called the West Bank is because it's on the West Bank of the Jordan River. I know it's pretty simple, but that's, that's why it's called that. And so they come to Jericho, which is the very first town, and it's actually, it's in sea level, it's the lowest city, lowest inhabited place on planet Earth. It's the lowest inhabited city in the entire planet. You can, you can bring the, the house lights up now. Um, Jericho is 15 miles uh, from uh, this other town over here that shall not be named. And uh, it's 846 feet below sea level. And when I was in Israel, couple, actually two years ago uh, this week, um, when I was there, we, um, I wasn't able to go to Jericho. I wasn't able to go into that part of the West Bank. Uh, because of the security and because of the, and because it just and also just takes so much time because of all the security that we weren't able to do that. But um, but it, it's it's in it's a part of that West Bank that's in our news often in the lowest place. And the city of Jericho was walled, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks about the walls of Jericho. Um, it was elevated with a retaining wall, so they had a retaining wall that the city was built on, and then they had um, exterior walls that were forty six feet high. I mean, that was big time in that day. 46, think about 46 feet high. They were wide enough, they were thick enough for chariots to race on top of them, uh, large enough for houses to be built. Rahab's house was in this wall, so it was big enough for that. It's one of the oldest military force, fortresses in the world. And inside the walls were six livable acres. That's the size, um, about the size we total here at the church have about with our ball field and with the sinkhole, we have about five acres. So you add about another acre onto that. So it was about six acres and about 600 people lived in this city at this time. And there would have been several thousands that would have lived, um, you know, one, two, three thousand that would have lived outside of the city that would have done business there, that would have traded there, that would have come into these walls uh, for fortress. So that's that's, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a huge, huge city um, in numbers of people, but it was, the, it was what was the first hindrance, the first thing that they had to accomplish to, to really move into all that God had for them. And so the first person they encounter is Rahab, and she's, she's always titled the prostitute. Every place in Scripture, that's, that's what she's called. And, and some would say, some theologians would try to say, well, that just, that's another word for innkeeper, and it's just not true. If that was true, then she wouldn't have been included every time because it's a part of her story, of who she is and what God had, had brought her to. And as I was preparing this, I was thinking about what it, 
what it must be like to find yourself in a place where you have to resort to prostitution. I mean, have you ever thought about that? I, I can promise you this. I'm sure it's not as glamorous as Hollywood makes it seem. And the brokenness that has to occur, the, the, the no other choices that must be left to make the choice for that to be livelihood. That it's you choose that or you choose homelessness or hunger. The point of desperation that Rahab would have had to have been at, of needing money, or, or was she being trafficked? We, we don't know. I mean, that's the case a lot today. Was, I mean, it says that she, later we'll read in the story where she brings her family into her home. Was it the family business? Was it, why wasn't her family helping her? What are the dynamics in that family that her dad knows that this is going on? I, I don't know the answers to those, but I think it tells us the kind of point of desperation that Rahab found herself in. That I'm sure she would have done anything else if it would have been possible. The hurt, the abuse, the ostracization, the loneliness of being trapped in this. I I read an article on on prostitution in, in a study in preparing for this. And the number one most common response of somebody that's trapped in this, in, in this situation is that people treat you like scum. That was the bottom line, is that you feel and people treat you like scum. One study done in San, Fran- San Francisco found that 83% of prostitutes had been threatened with a weapon, and 82% had been physically assaulted. 82% is current statistics. I bet you it wasn't much different in that day either. People are people. And so you just see this brokenness. And as I read this story, we can just real quickly just read that as a title. But if we stop to think of the implications of that, it really becomes significant in our life. And so we know that these spies, they entered her house. They were hiding there. They were were there. Scripture doesn't seem to indicate that they were there for her business. Um, The word entered her house could the same vernacular, the same words could be used for entering her, but it doesn't use it that, where it does in other places of Scripture. It actually says they entered the house. And so um, just linguistically, it shows that they, in my opinion, that that wasn't why they were there. They were simply finding a place to hide. If we come to verse 2, as we come to verse 2, it says, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. They weren't very good spies, were they? <laughs> they? They got caught just right away. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come here to spy out the whole land. Now, the king knew who Rahab was. Uh, it was a small enough town. So people knew, knew each other. And so uh, her reputation had preceded her, we could say. And so we come to verse seven or verse 4 to 7. This passage, but the woman had taken the two men and she had hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. That's not true, is it? They were still there with her. I don't know which way they went. Not true. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Not going to happen, Jericho police. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax she had laid out on her roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. 
And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. She lied. I'm going to stop and just talk about that for a moment because there's, some, uh, there's a lot of theologians, a lot of scholars that just don't know how to handle that. It just throws them for a loop that a, pro, a lying prostitute God uses. That a lying prostitute is found in the hall of faith. Because when we think of great faith, we think usually of morality, don't we? That's, that's, that's honestly kind of how we usually... And so this really just kind of like blows the minds of a lot of people that God here uses a lying prostitute to advance his purposes. And so Christian ethicists have, have looked at this, and there's basically three approaches in Christian ethics of how, this, of how you deal with this, this issue, okay? And so um, if you'll just bear with me, I, I, I find this pretty fascinating if you like to study ethics. Um, there's three ways this could have been dealt with. The first way is conflicting absolutes. Conflicting absolutes. What conflicting absolutes means is that you choose the lesser of two evils. And so here she had to make a choice. And so uh, some would say it was justified because she chose the lesser of two evils, that it was less evil to lie than it was for these men to be captured and possibly killed. And so her action is justified based on con- conflicting absolutes. Another approach is graded absolutism, which is like the opposite of the lesser of two evils, which is what is the greater good of the two? So is the greater good of the two, these men being saved and the purposes of God being advanced, their life being saved, or telling the truth? Which one of those is greater? And so she picked the greater of the good. And so some have justified it with that. Another position, another approach is non-conflicting absolutes. And the reason I bring this up is because we all face situations where we have to make tough choices. And so what kind of choices are we going to make? And a person could, could wrongly interpret that it's okay to lie and God's going to use that. And we know clearly in scripture that lying is not appropriate, that it's not right. And, and some would say, well, she, I mean, she was a pagan, like she didn't know. And there, there, I mean, there, there may be some, absolutely some truth to that. But as we find ourselves navigating life and making choices. How do we respond? And and the third option is non-conflicting absolutes. Non-conflicting absolutes in this view is that although there may seem to be conflicting absolutes, but in reality, there's always a third choice that doesn't lead to sin. And that third choice is trusting God in the midst of it. That we don't twist facts. We don't turn things. We trust God that even in our truth-telling, that he will show up and he will make himself strong, and he will work a way where even there seems to be no way. And that's a, that's, that's a legitimate option that could have been taken here. And it's like, okay, easy for you to say two, three, four, four thousand years later, right? Three thousand years later. But, but as we deal in our lives, I think for us, non-conflicting absolutes of tru- being those that tell the truth and trusting the Lord that he'll work in our behalf is, is, a, is, the, right, is the right way to to approach it. And, and here's something else that you need to know of interpreting scripture is just because the Bible records something doesn't mean it endorses it, okay? So just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean it's even encouraging it, right? Because Jacob had four wives, right? That led to him having 12 sons, the, the, the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. And just because Jacob had four wives doesn't mean it's God's will for Jay to have four wives, right? Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> amen, Heather? Yeah, amen. All right. So you see what I'm saying? So just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's like we're supposed to go do that, right? Because like Judas went and 
hung himself, right? We know that's not what the Lord has for us. Let's go to, let's go to verse 8. We, here we see um, uh, Rahab's confession and agreement. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord... You might want to circle that in your notes because I'm going to come back to it. I know that the Lord, one God here, has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Can you grasp this? They're melting in fear. The hearts are shaken of the people because they know that the Israelites are on the other side of the Jordan and they know what's coming. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you and you came out of Egypt. How long had that been? That had been 40 years earlier. Yet the stories of the faithfulness and the goodness of the God of Israel had spread to the nations around them. And they had told their children and their children's children the stories of the God of, of the nation, not yet nation as in geographical, but the people, the Hebrew people of God. Forty years it happened. We heard how you dried, how the Lord dried that up as you came out of Egypt. What you did in Sion and Og with the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. We heard of it. Our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage fell because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Let's talk for a minute about Rahab's faith. Because I said before, she was a lying prostitute who made it in the hall of faith. So how does this happen? Let's look at the essence of her faith. Because faith is more than just saying the right things. Faith is more than a feeling. Faith is more than association with moral people. Faith is more than just a moral stance yourself. There has to be legitimacy. There has to be, our faith has to be based on truth. So let's just take a moment and look at, at Rahab's faith. So the first thing is that she had faith in one God. One God, she says right here in verse 8, I know that the Lord, she even used the word Yahweh, which was a very personal name for the Lord. There's, there's, she knew there was one God. Now, she was Canaanite, right? So that meant they had a plurality of gods. They were pantheistic. They were gods for everything. But she acknowledged that there was one God. You would think that could be assumed in our culture today, but that's not true. That our faith needs to be of one, of one God. There's one God, O Israel, one God who is supreme. She had faith in a personal God. Verse 11, for the Lord, your God, she says to the spies, this word Yahweh, that it was, a, it was one God and one God who is personal. It could be their God who could be her God. She had a faith that the God is the God of Israel. Verse 8, she says, we know what the Lord has done for your people. That the God of Israel is the God of gods. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And that she had a faith that God is sovereign. That as he moved, as he worked, that, that he could do whatever he wanted to do. That he was that powerful. 
She has a pretty good grasp of God here, doesn't she? Just by what had been heard, just by, because she believed it. She believed what she heard about God. She was responding to the truth that she had been exposed to. Let's see what happens because of her faith. Because of her faith, she's placed herself at God's mercy. She didn't know these spies, but yet she placed her future in their hands because of how they represented their God. They must have been people that she would trust. They must have treated her differently than the men in the city had treated her. She must have saw something of hope and of promise in the way they carried themselves, the way they interacted with her, the way they were in her home. She placed herself at God's mercy. She stood against her culture. The whole city was bent on the destruction and keeping out the Hebrew people, but not Rahab. She received them. She helped them. She hid them. And don't we, as we walk in faith and are people of faith, don't we end up standing against our culture? Not with protests, not shouting, not making big scenes, but simply by following Christ, it automatically positions us in conflict in a different way than our culture is. It's like, it's like when, you, when you come into Christ, when you come into his kingdom, you're automatically going the, the wrong way uh, down a river. You ever try to do that? Try to ever walk up a river and everything's flowing this way? But you stand your ground and you, you keep going. That's what it's like a lot of times, isn't it? And this world is, is the culture is headed one way, but because we're people of faith, we're headed another way. I was speaking with um, uh, one of the ladies in our church yesterday, and she's walked with the Lord a long time. She's actually, I didn't know, she's been in our church 25 years. And she's just an incredible lady. Most of you would know her if I mentioned her name. And, and as we were talking, she was just talking about how she loves church because she feels so home at church. But when she is in the world, when she's at work, when she's in other places, she just feels out of place because she is so much different than the environment around her and how difficult it can be at times. That's exactly what we're talking about here. That's normal. Just so you know, that's normal. She was willing to take risk. She was willing to, her faith engaged her in such a way she was willing to take a risk with her life, with her family's life. In spite of what might, she just took great risk. Is our faith the kind of faith where we'll take great risk? Not knowing what's on the other side. Because, right, we'll take faith. Like, we'll have faith, we'll take risk if we know it's going to turn out okay, right? That's no faith. That, that's no risk. And so here she was willing to, to take that. It's, and so I think we're beginning to see that this lying prostitute had quite a bit of faith, didn't she? We see that. Verse 15, right? But as we come here, we see that God, God makes a way for us to be in his story. God makes a way for us to be in his story. God has made a way for you to be in his story. Those that are around you, your family, your friends, those you work with, God is making a way. He has made a way for them to be in his story. Verse 15, she let them down by a rope through the window because the gates were closed. You know, I'm thankful that God always, 
He always has a way, right? It didn't seem like there was a way because the gates were closed. How are they going to get out? God made a way. They opened the window. There was a way of escape. So the Bible tells the Corinthians that when you're tempted, there's always a way of escape. There's always a way with the Lord. Always. We're never without options. Aren't you thankful for that? We're never without options. There's always a way. So she let him down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. So this is going to be important as we advance through this story in the next couple of chapters. Her house was in the wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. There were um, like honeycombed caves in the hills outside of Jericho. There still are. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men said to her, the oath you, sw- you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother and your brothers and all your family into the house, if any of them go outside of your house into the street, their blood will be on your heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if, we, but if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from this oath that you made us swear. You got a deal, she said. Agreed. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. That scarlet cord is not just a, a detail to skip by. It's, so, it's such an important, important part of the story. The first place you see a scarlet cord, a scarlet thread in scriptures in, is in Genesis 38 where a Tamar who is in the lineage of Jesus who, okay, great story this week. Read it, Genesis chapter 38. She dresses up as a prostitute and solicits her father-in-law for sex. It's in the Bible, I'm telling you. And so she has a kid from her father-in-law, and she ties a red cord on one of his hands. So that's the first place that we see this scarlet cord. The next place we see scarlet cord in the Bible is Rahab, who's also listed in the lineage of Jesus, who also is a prostitute, but this is used as a as a symbol, and it refers back, I believe it refers back to Passover. Because if you remember Passover, 40 years earlier, when they were in Egypt, before the, 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 the great plague came of the, the death of the firstborn, that, that there was a, the promise of the Passover, that if, that if the head of the household, if he, took, if he took the blood of a lamb and he put it upon the doorpost, that red blood, and put it on the doorpost, that all who were in that house would be saved. That death would pass over them and they would live. And that was a foreshadow of come of, of Jesus Christ himself, of dying on the cross for our sins. And so this scarlet thread looks back to the Passover and it looks forward to the cross. It looks forward to the Last Supper where even as we have communion, we hold the juice, the red juice, which represents the blood of Christ. And then it looks even further to heaven, to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will drink of the vine. And I don't think it's going to be grape juice, folks. Just my, Probably not Welch's, I'm just saying. But we drink of the fruit of the vine, which represents the complete victory of Jesus of all time. 
And this scarlet thread, this scarlet cord, ties Scripture from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through to the very end of Revelation. And this, this silver, this, this scarlet red cord is the blood of Jesus. It's the redemption of Jesus that is available to every single one of us. Even if you're at the lowest spot on the earth, 856 feet below sea level, even if you're in the most despised occupation, the lowest occupation in the world, Jesus' redemption can still find you. It can still, no matter how low, no matter how far, guys, your friends aren't too far. Your family's not too far from the reaching, loving hand of the blood of Jesus. And so it's simply responding as Rahab responded. Because a yes to Jesus supersedes, overcomes everything else in your life. Have you ever thought about that? That a yes to Jesus is greater than anything else. It's greater than any decision you've ever made. It's greater than any mistake you've ever made. It's greater than any circumstances you find right now yourself in that a yes to Jesus is greater than all those things. And what the story of Rahab teaches us is that your mess is your message. That your mess is your message. Say that just real sincerely to your neighbor. Say, your mess is your message. It really is true. I, in our English language, I find it's interesting that the first four letters of Messiah are mess. And Messiah is here because of our mess. That our mess is our message. Maybe you've experienced abandonment and rejection. That's been the mess in your life. That's your message. Maybe you've struggled with addiction alcoholism, drug addiction, that mess, that's your message. Maybe you've been diagnosed with some type of disease. Uh, Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. Maybe you've overcome it. Maybe it's made a mess of your life, friend. That's your message. Maybe you've been divorced. That's your message. See, we want to hide our mess, don't we? Like we want to cover our mess. We don't want anybody to know of our mess because that's, that's the way we do it, isn't it? But the Bible makes sure that every place Rahab is mentioned, her mess is mentioned because her mess is her message. Maybe you've participated in adultery. That's your message, my friend. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've gone bankrupt and you've been jobless. Friends, that's your message. You don't want to know why? Because every single person, or there's a person out there that has experience the same mess you're in you're not the only one you're not the only one that's experienced the the death of a spouse the death of a child the loss of a marriage the battle with addiction with pornography you're not the only one and as your mess becomes your message then it gives power to your life that we overcome by the blood of the lamb that silver thread and the word of our testimony That those two things together are powerful for overcoming. And instead of burying our mess, our mess is a message and we use to to help others. And the same comfort that we've received from the Holy Spirit, we ourselves now give comfort to others. Let your mess be your message. Don't let pride stay in the way. Because God wants to use it. 
We see this, James chapter 2, verse 25. Here, Rahab is a, an example of one who put work to her faith. It says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute, see, includes her message, considered righteous. Why was she considered righteous? For what she did when she gave lodging to the spies, sent them off in a different direction. And she wasn't, uh, she wasn't commended for lying. She was commended for lodging them and then sending them in a different direction. But her faith had action to it. Hebrews 11.31, which I've been quoting all morning. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She had faith. And her faith produced the work of hiding those spies and protecting them. And I love this one. Love this one. Solomon, the father of Boaz, Matthew 1.5, who is the mother of of Rahab, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. You know who Jesse was the father of? David. That Rahab, prostitute. David's great-grandma. In the lineage of Jesus. A foreigner. A Canaanite. A pagan. A lying prostitute, a mess, is in the lineage of Jesus. Matthew did that on purpose because he wanted everybody to know you're not too far from God that he cannot save you. There's no mess that's too great in your life that he can't rescue you from and that he can't redeem you from. And so as I wrap up this morning, as we finish, we we face a, and in some ways we kind of face a crisis because we find ourselves as either one who is Who's like Rahab or one who's like the spies? We really, we find ourselves in one of those two situations. We either would be able to consider ourselves insiders to the things of God, to church, to to all those types of things, or outsiders like Rahab. And so, which are you this morning? What about outsiders? Now, I saw a movie this last week called The Greatest Showman. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's awesome. And in this movie, I never knew that Wolverine could sing. I'm just saying. I just didn't know. I was surprised. That's all I can say. I was surprised. So as I'm watching this movie, and I'm not one that likes movies and musicals, but man, it's a powerful movie. And I'm watching this. There's a group of, and I'm not going to spoil it for you, but there's this group of outsiders who are accepted. And their lives change. They actually change history. And they said this. They They were a group of outsiders that no one else wanted, and because they were included, they found purpose, they found family, and they found home. Guys, that's all anybody wants. Our world, our city, is full of people who want purpose, family, and a home. And if we're the insiders, how do we respond? How do we respond? Do we receive or do we reject? How do we receive? How do we respond? Because remember, God uses the most unlikely. The most unlikely. That's his pattern. And so if we just use what we would think, we're going to miss out on the plans and purposes of God. How do we receive those who are not like us? 
Because God's heart is always for the broken and for the outsiders, and His grace always flows to the lowest valleys. Always. We'll look in a few weeks at the story where they come to Jericho, and the walls do crumble, and she is saved because of her faith. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord, we come to you, Lord, so dependent on your goodness and on your grace this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray, Lord, for those who, they, they would, this morning, Lord, they would even, in this place, would even call themselves outsiders, Lord. Lord, they would do not feel close to you. They do not feel close to the people of God. They do not feel like they qualify. They do not feel like they've been good enough. They do not feel like Like they're included. Lord, I thank you that it's not based on our feelings, Lord, but it's based on the reality of what you've provided on the cross. And now, Lord, I pray this morning they would simply respond to your love, to your goodness, and to your grace, Lord, and they would receive forgiveness and restoration and wholeness. Thou's with heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here this morning and I'm not going to trick you. I just, I just want to know who you are so I can pray for you. If you're here and you just say, Jay, that's me. That's me. You've been talking about me this morning. And you want a fresh start with the Lord. You want to grab a hold of that scarlet cord of the forgiveness and the redemption of Jesus this morning. Maybe you've been far from him and you're coming home today. You're coming back to him today. If that's you, would you just would you raise your hand right where you are? You say, Jay, that's me. Pray for me this morning. I'll pray for you right where you are. You say, That's me, Jay. That's me. Lord, we're quote unquote insiders. Lord, would you help us see people differently? Would you help us see people as you see them? Lord, would we be really, 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 really slow to judge, Lord? And Lord, I pray, Lord. This morning, Lord, for those who, Lord, all of us, Lord, all of us, Lord, who have a mess, every single one of us do. Lord, would you really help us turn our mess into a message? Lord, would you really help us help others by simply being truthful about what you are doing and what you have done in our lives, Lord? And Lord, we thank you, Lord, that as we have our faith and our trust in you, Lord, no matter what comes tumbling down around us, just as these walls of Jericho did, Lord, that we'll be safe and secure in you. In Jesus' name, amen.